iTunes presents Meet the Author. Raised in Berkeley, California, and currently living in Los Angeles, Miranda July is a filmmaker, writer, and performing artist. She wrote, directed, and starred in a feature-length film, Me and You and Everyone We Know, which won awards at both Sundance and Cannes. Her short fiction has been published in Harper's and The New Yorker, among many others, and has been heard on public radio. Her collection of 16 stories is called No One Belongs Here More Than You. Dave Eggers writes that the stories are, quote, incredibly charming, beautifully written, frequently laugh-out-loud funny. The book is now available in paperback and as an audiobook. Miranda, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Just from that quick biography, it's already clear that you've done all kinds of stuff in all t- kinds of media types, from music to film to writing. At what point in the creative process, when you're working on something, does its final form become clear? Well, usually I'm just, like, I'm working on a script, so all my ideas are for that script. But sometimes I'll try something out, like, for example, this script is based on a performance that I did, and the performance came out of a sort of failed short story. Um, So... It actually, like, bounced around and changed mediums, which is kind of unusual. I mean, I think I, uh, I, I've, I'd never done that before. But, um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I sometimes, you know, I, I have a little journal that I write ideas in, and in the upper corner I'll write, like, S for story or M for movie, A for art, I for ideal idea like a some sort of conceptual idea um uh, so i do sort of vaguely file ideas as you know as i live right i remember uh, i think i read uh, an interview with you in which you said that the idea for the short film uh are you the favorite person of anyone kind of started as a short story right i mean that really still this is a short story in my mind that a friend you know um adapted and then i was like oh well if you're gonna make a movie out of it i want to be in it so um <laughs> uh but yeah I, I i guess it was a story that was all dialogue so you know did, it's kind of like a script yeah did you what what form did you start with originally um i started writing plays in, in in high school, which I don't really do anymore. Um, and they were very kind of not, not radical in a way, <laughs> you know, like they were, they were sort of like really like a, a play, uh, with actors and I would like hold auditions and, um, have like adult actors in it. Somehow I didn't want like teenagers in my plays. Um, because that would be well, they're not serious. Yeah, they're not serious, and I, you know, <laughs> try to take myself seriously. So, um, and then, you know, I got a little cooler and realized that, um, you know, I was putting on these plays in a punk club, and I, I kind of started looking around and realizing, oh, I could just perform. Actually, I could do absolutely anything. 
um, in front of an audience. And that kind of led into performance work, which was still quite scripted. Um, and then making short movies and then sort of just alternating for many years doing performance and movies. Um, uh, yeah. s some of your performances actually were recorded as CDs and are in the music section of the iTunes store. Do you think of them as music or? Right. No, I mean, I actually am not a musician at all. Uh, people throw that around, <laughs> but I, I totally not. And then when you moved into the, your live performances that you've done, um, or that at least you started with, is it fair to say that they were um, less accessible than some of the stuff that you've done recently? Well, I guess so. I mean, I always thought they were pretty accessible at the time, but, you know, I guess it's true. I was only really performing to, like, children. Um, so, I mean, not children, but, like, younger people. Right. Uh, whereas now, like, it is sort of, I appreciate probably because of that, that, like, you know, people of all ages seem to connect to the movie. But I, I never was just like a total weirdo you know I think I'm I'm too much of a like planner and um you know I, I like people to feel like what they're seeing is somehow familiar and somehow relevant to them like it it, it seems like there's no way in if you're just purely bizarre um, right right yeah that's that's interesting because some of the characters in the book often um, you know, they often sort of stumble into these really big life-changing decisions and you get the sense that they haven't thought a lot about them. And I was wondering, you know, how is that? Is, do you see all people like that? Or is that, sort of, uh, is that sort of the type of person that you're interested in as somebody who doesn't seem quite as self-aware? Um... I guess I, I mean, even though I totally overthink everything and I'm completely self-conscious, there's another way in which I, I kind of relate to that. Um, like, the way in which the characters are, are daring, you know, and yet filled with doubt and, and kind of um, unthinkingly daring, like, that's kind of my style, personally like anytime I've ever actually done anything daring it's it's been like the one moment when I wasn't thinking you know right. if all of a um, sudden there's there's a break yeah yeah and I, I guess that's such a sort of beautiful moment even if it's like totally you know ignorant or leads to concussion or something um it uh yeah it's a break like you said one of my favorite stories in the book is um, or actually one of my favorite scenes is from the story, Mon Plaisir, where a couple whose relationship is in trouble find this intense connection while they're working as extras on a film set. This kind of role play seems to have a kind of a, a fairly powerful effect in a lot of these stories. Right. I guess I, I like that idea that um, you could pretend yourself into new feelings and new relationships and um you know obviously i'm a i'm big big a big pretender um and and the 
but the kind of leap where it's almost like some kind of science fiction thing happens, like like we were just pretending, and then what's this? We actually have new powers now, and and we see each other differently, and you know, in fact, all of life has suddenly tilted. Like that's generally, I'm going for that every day, <laughs> personally. Right. Let's listen to a scene from the story Mon Plaisir, where a struggling couple take roles as extras on the set of a film. We were in an early scene where Maximilian takes his six-year-old love interest to a fancy French restaurant called Mon Plaisir. We and 22 other extras were paired and clustered at tables with long tablecloths. Maximilian and the girl were right beside us, holding hands and looking into each other's eyes in a way that I, for one, felt uncomfortable with. But it was not my place to judge the love between these two fictional characters. Dave, the assistant director, told us to talk and eat just as we normally would if we were enjoying a meal at a fancy French restaurant, but to take tiny bites so the meals would last for the next four to five hours. Carl looked down at his plate. Not eating French food was easy for us because we're macrobiotic. And action! Hi. Hi, Carl. We don't normally say hi at dinner. I'm going to drink some of my water now. Me too. No, we can't both drink water. Why not? That's not real, but I'm really thirsty. Well, just wait. Carl leaned back in his chair, waiting. What are you doing? We have to keep talking. Well, clearly I'm not an actor, but then it wasn't my idea, was it? Oh, terrific. So now it's my fault for cut, 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 cut. Wherein we learned our first big lesson about background acting. When Dave told us to talk as we normally would at a fancy French restaurant, he meant talk as you normally would, but don't use sound. Talk silently. He thought we knew. No, we didn't even know why we were here. Where was Savannah Banks? I glanced around, but she wasn't at Montpless here. Of course she wasn't. She probably didn't even live in this city. She was probably on a real date at a real French restaurant. I looked at Carl, and he looked at me. Our bleak reality was now apparent. We couldn't leave, and we couldn't change partners. Maximilian stroked the little girl's hand with a wrinkled finger, and Dave called action. Suddenly, we were actors. We alternated like people talking. We listened and nodded and laughed silently, and ate tiny bites of food. We moved our mouths and faces. We gestured occasionally to emphasize. We animated ourselves as young couples animate themselves when they are talking. Carl even interrupted me, mouthing and nodding in agreement with what I was saying, presumably taking it one step further, and I just knew, knowing the way that people talk when they are happy, that he had said something funny. I laughed soundlessly, and Carl smiled a real smile. So pleased was he to have made me laugh. And it was so tremendous to see that smile. I could feel myself glowing. I somehow felt beautiful and cut. We said nothing now that we were allowed to speak. We couldn't even look at each other. It was too embarrassing. I waited nervously for action. And when Dave yelled out, I looked up, meeting Carl's eyes as they crinkled into a smile. How striking he was in his collared shirt with his new haircut. He poured more wine and we raised our glasses and mouthed, to us, 
And by us, I knew we both meant not us, but these two people who had met for the first time at Mont Plaisir. I slid my hand across the table. Carl quickly covered it in his. I bloomed like a streck match and cut. Again, we waited with our eyes lowered. His hand remained on mine, but lifelessly. And as lights were adjusted around us, I had time to wonder how many more takes were left. There could not be enough. On action, I squeezed Carl's finger and he gripped mine. The urgency seemed obvious now. We both leaned forward and I held his bearded chin as we kissed quickly, not wanting to distract from the lead table. The feeling between us was mournful and desperate. We could not look away from each other. Every inhalation was a question, yes, followed by yes. Falling and catching and falling and catching, we descended into a precarious and vivid place. I had always known it was there, but had never guessed where. Carl's new sense of humor flourished in silence. He made subtly absurd gestures that surprised me into almost audible laughter. And I could not make a move without making love. Every time I shifted in my chair, lifted my fork, brushed my hair from my eyes, I seemed to be pushing through the motions as through honey, slowly and with all kinds of implications. I feared our breath was too loud. I seized his forearms. He took off his shoes. Beneath the table, our feet pushed with an almost vocal eloquence. Dave cried, cut, and then, that's a wrap for our background. Thank you, background actors. How could it be over? Carl and I looked at each other with disbelief. The crew began to clap. Everyone clapped. We could only rise from our table and stumble out of the room with the 22 other diners. We didn't look at each other when we parted toward different dressing rooms. The drive home was long and sealed in a drowning silence. Walking across the front lawn, Carl stopped to recoil the hose that I had left out the day before. I waited for him for a moment and then felt silly standing there and went inside. It was late, so I started making dinner. Only once we sat down did it strike me as bizarre. Here we were again, eating together in silence. I pressed my fork into the greens and began to cry. Carl looked up. We stared across the table at each other. It was plain between us. We should not be together any longer. And cut. When it came time to do the audiobook for the book, for the stories, you actually voiced the stories from the audiobook. Most writers, when it's time to record, don't read it. They leave it up to, you know, a professional voice person. Why did you feel like it was important to read your stories? Well, yeah, I think there were, were actually like a series of emails around that topic where it was like the whole thing came up and I was like, oh, but wait, shouldn't I? Am I... <laughs> Can I do this? Right, right. <laughs> and uh, don't I, aren't I sort of an actress? I mean, not really, but, uh, and I, you know, I'd actually recorded so many of the stories before um, for radio or different things. So it to, to me, I felt like, well, I, I really honestly know how to do this. And, um, and I would want to direct that person if someone else read it, and that would be really awkward. And um, Why aren't you more like me? Yeah, yeah, here, I'll read it. And, um, 
Yeah. I mean, that said, you know, when I actually got to doing all the dialogue, I was like, hmm, there's a reason why <laughs> they hire professionals. Like, I quickly lost track of who I was like, wait, did I do that voice already? Or I'd, I'd sort of stop and ask the engineer, like, do the, you know, because I don't, right. with my dialogue in the book, I didn't ever do like she said or he said. There's no, there's no clarification about who's speaking. Right. Um, so, I mean, Good luck to the to the <laughs> listeners. I imagine it was probably easier to do the ones that were sort of internal and um, yeah, than rather than the ones with the, where there's where there's a lot of dialogue, especially between men, maybe or right. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, or two women is hard. That's hard. Yeah. When I was listening to the stories, um, what hadn't been quite as clear to me when I when I read them in in book form was the humor. And when you read it, um, you know, what when Dave Vegar says that, f- that the stories are frequently laugh out loud funny, I found myself hearing that humor aspect more. Um, is that something that's, that's important to you in a story? Or Yeah, I mean, I guess how I read it is how it came to me. So right. that humor is there. It's kind of, um, you know, I, I am... I don't really laugh while I write, but I am sometimes kind of smiling, you know, in, in this dumb way, like I'm, I'm entertaining myself. And, and yeah, I mean, I think in the same way that when you're reading something funny, you kind of open up a little because that's a, it, it's a great thing to have in common. You feel like you have something in common if, if you think their thing is funny. It's a kind of intimacy. So um, when I'm doing it alone, I guess I'm, I'm, uh, I think I'm laughing with someone, you know, <laughs> which is a nice feeling. Right, right. At what point when you were writing the stories, were you also working on the script for your film? Right. Well, I wrote, I wrote the shorts. Um, okay. I wrote the shorter stories in the book at the same time that I was writing me and you. So, um, so a lot of those stories have a lot in common with the movie. And then, I made the movie and then I really had it clear in my mind that I, uh, that was a project, that book that I was really almost done with. Um, if I could just write a few more stories. So I, I wrote pretty much all the longer stories in the book are, are what I wrote, um, just after me and you came out. I see. When, when you were working on the movie, I, I imagine, especially the directing part and the, the production part, much more collaborative, um, was it extremely different from from the process of writing, or or did the the two kind of blend into each other? Um, I mean, it's different for sure, but it you know it was a lot like the performances um, that I'd done and and still do in in that sense. So it was a familiar feeling of kind of um, building a team of people. I mean, a much mm-hmm. bigger team and um, better paid and stuff, but. Uh, but that was, you know, it's something that I've always, uh, gone in and out of in my life. And, and I think, yeah, writing is kind of comfortingly, um, under control, you know, Mm -hmm. if if you understand it, that's enough, you know, which, uh, seems really satisfying. Like to me, right this second, I'm casting a movie and it's like, nothing sounds better than writing a novel to me, which is probably really diluted, but. Right. You're probably, it's probably because you're really just answerable to yourself when you're writing as opposed to being answerable to a thousand other people. 
Yeah. Which experience did you enjoy more? You're doing another movie now? Yeah, I am. Um, so I'm completely biased. I, uh, every other medium looks great to me. Um, <laughs> I, I just bought a keyboard the other day. As I said, I'm not a musician, so that should say something about the place that I'm <laughs> You're in. You're desperate. Um, yeah. Uh, um, there is something so satisfying about finishing a story and um, the the way that I feel about myself. You know, I, I don't really feel that way. Uh, making the movie, it's kind of an elusive thing. Like, you never quite have it because it's... Um, it, there's no real point where it's such a long process. There's no point where you're like super satisfied. I don't know. Where you can um, where you can put the wax seal on the on the paper. Yeah, and... where you're kind you know like with a story when you feel like you did good, you're sort of reading it back and you're like, "Wow, maybe this is something." And even if it turns out that's not true, like you had that feeling for a day, you know. You have directed or created some music videos for bands like Sleater Kinney and Blonde Redhead. How did you become involved with those projects? Well, actually, I only have made one music video, and that's the Sleater Kinney one, which was many years ago. The Blonde Redhead one, um, Mike Mills directed, and oh. I'm just the the girl in it. <laughs> um, honestly, like it wasn't my idea. And I even like ran out of ideas for um, positions to hold. Like I hold a different pose every second, but how you many know, do you, do you remember how to, many total poses I, there were? I think I got like halfway through and I was like, wow, I thought I was going to be really good at this. And so he would sort of Mike would sort of do positions for me off camera, and I'd be like, is this it? Um, okay, you need six arms for this one. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, and this leader, Kinney, was, one was just, um, they're good friends of mine, and I was still living in, in Portland at the time, and I was just like one of the people they knew who made movies, you know? So I think they just, it was just natural. Right. You know, the, the, the tone of the stories is so distinctive. Um, what kind of music do you think is a sort of a good match for the stories? I guess it's a, it's a silly question, but, you know, what, what um, album uh, should someone buy if they've got money left over to spend in iTunes <laughs> after, they've, after they've bought your audiobook? Um, well, anything I say, first of all, is going to be flattering myself because... You know, this will just all be music that I like. And uh, and you've also got an um, album of keyboard music, forthcoming. Right, forthcoming. Um, uh, I mean, today so far I've listened to Wolf Parade, um, Management, uh, The National, uh, Bodies of Water. Those are some. But I actually, I don't, I can't listen to music when I when I write, um, in fact, I put like noise canceling headphones on, so there's really no connection between that music mm -hmm. and my stories. Is it so you can? Is it just for concentration's sake? I guess. Yeah, I'm like I kind of have to leave the world and get really focused. And oh, the new Gnarls Barkley, I do like that oh. a lot. Miranda July's book is called "No One Belongs Here More Than You." It's now available in paperback and also as an audiobook in the iTunes store. 
Miranda, thanks for your time. Thank you.